Welcome to Radioactive Cockroach. I'm Judy Deal and I'm one of many, many, many radioactive cockroaches. When we make disclosures, formally and informally, of sexual assault, we can feel a little bit cockroachy, as if people might recoil from us and it might be better for everyone if we just scuttle back under the fridge. We can feel a little bit radioactive, as if we've got the power to cause some kind of unseen harm. But we are, urban legend would have it, the ultimate survivors. So, dart out from your crevice, scuttle out from under the fridge and come and have a happy dance in the sunshine with us. It's nice to be back. Cockroaches aren't nice, you know, and I don't see why we should have to be. So there'll be a niceness discussion today. Well, now I'm looking around me. It's nice that we're allowed out to play so nice. My elders are out of lockdown and with wedding plans underway. Stutzel's health is improving, which is nice. They've finally figured out what's wrong. A nice change. There's a very effective treatment. And she'll be buoyant again before long. We're bursting the Canberra bubble a bit. And there's a movie review from Greg Fleet. He's chatting it in from the laundromat. It's a genre that's kinda hard to beat And very shortly the comedy festival's happening And the courts are open again I'm back to chatting round the table Instead of skulking in my den Which is not nice We're cheerfully on topic Informative, neurotic in a nice and normal so stick around, you're on safe ground, we're companionable every day, cause there's still a whole lot to say, and not all of it's nice. And now it's time for the Ellen Stutzer. Macedon Rangers and we've extracted Judy Stutz from the fringes of Greater Melbourne. Yes, I, I have escaped and come to the beautiful, beautiful ranges where there are wombats. Whippersnippers. Whippersnippers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, council workers with whippersnippers. But this is this the good thing about this little studio. Is it's double glazed, and we can't hear the the council workers and their whippersnippers. No, I quite like a whippersnipper when I'm using it, but I'm not keen on leaf blowers and cockroaches. If you've got a leaf blower, um, I forgive you, and I still love you a bit. Actually, I've got a bit of a tip. Well, that's a fairly raunchy domestic tip theme, but take it away with your domestic tip, Judy Stutz. If you have a leaf blower and you have washing on the line that you, you want to get dry, 
the way to do it is to get your leaf blower and apply it to the clothing. And this was something you did regularly, was it? Oh, no. I must admit, I thought it was insane. However, uh, my husband thought it was a wonderful idea and much, much better than taking the clothing off the line and putting it in the dryer. And was it really annoying in that he was right? Yes. Oh, that's yeah. So there you go. Um, how to annoy one party and solve it. Do all sorts of things at once. Take a tip from Stutso. <laughs> Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favourite things. And as we move away from the idea that domestic appliances might be one of our favourite things, I can turn you all towards one of my favourite things. It's a podcast, The Fitzroy Diaries. It's produced by the ABC and is the creative work of Lauren Clark. She has lots of favourite things embedded in her stories of the everyday vicissitudes of inner suburban family life. I love the tops of the old terraces in Brunswick Street with their exploding roof gardens and generations-old signs hand-painted on the walls that haven't been painted over yet. I love whatever this new craze is of middle-aged women on rollerblades just loving their lives with their socks pulled up to their knees and their pastel-coloured helmets and knee pads rolling through the streets without a single solitary concern about what anybody thinks but themselves. So Lauren Clark, is she is she any relation to, to John Clark? She is. She's John Clark's daughter. He, uh, he has two daughters and when John Clark and... Cockroaches, you must Google him, the late, great, marvellous political satirist, comedian and general nice guy, John Clark. When he died, one of his daughters said that if her father had ever met your eye and you felt there'd been a genuine connection, you had. And that's what I like about the Fitzroy Diaries. You feel you have a genuine connection with a whole heap of people. They're beautiful little stories. It's... Uh, Wonderful place to spend three series of podcasting in, so I'm recommending it really highly. But yeah, I did meet John Clark's eye once. Oh, cool. Very cool. Did he make you laugh? He made me feel like we had something in common. We were, each of us, walking with our adult daughters in opposite directions, doing blockies around the malt house, chatting while we waited for a show to start. On the first lap, he clocked that he'd been recognised and just mm-hmm. nodded politely. On the second lap, he met my eyes and said, isn't it fabulous that we're allowed to go out with our adult daughters? To be seen in public. Oh, it was just wonderful. So can I, cockroaches, I want to send you to that wonderful adult daughter and her fabulous Three series of the Fitzroy Diaries. We like Fitzroy here at Radioactive Cockroach. Except if you're going to try and park, take a public transport. The white winters that melt into springs. These are a few of my favourite things. When the dog bites. So while we're, while we're still talking about favourite things, 
My child-rearing chickens are coming home to roost, Judy. They are? Mm-hmm. Why? What, what, what has happened? What has transpired, my friend? Well, I brought my kids up to really enjoy musicals with me. And one of them's about to get married and she wants me to make flower girl dresses. They are to be for girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes and that is the command and there's nothing I can do about it. So start so, I'm not going to confess to my guilty pleasures today. I'm going to have a little think about that. Do you have a guilty pleasure? I do, actually. Uh, One of the things I I do quite like is if there's someone I'm not fond of and something embarrassing or humiliating happens to them, uh, I get that feeling of schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Or if you use the English word, which is epicaricacy. Please don't ask me to spell it. Okay. Epicaricacy. So they, I was always taught that, oh, there's no word for schadenfreude in English. Absolute rubbish. Epicaricacy. Oh, epicaricacy. Epicaricacy. Look, we don't wish a terrorist attack or cancer on No, no, no. It's got to be just a little bit humiliating yeah. or embarrassing. A little bit of embarrassment never hurts. Oh, no, that's always a nod. Do you have a favourite story about that? I do. It goes back to the days when I was working in Parliament House. I was working late one night, uh, tying up some red tape, as you do. Macrame. Yes, macrame red tape. When I hear a bit of a kerfuffle. I imagine most of life at Parliament House is a kerfuffle. Well, it was more of a cacophony. (laughs) So I stick my head out the door. Uh, make sure it's not terrorists, and it's not. Uh, what it is, is the Honourable Member doing an extremely good impression of a cattle dog. Okay, so we've got the Honourable or... Dishonourable, perhaps. Possibly. So we've got the cattle dog, okay. Yeah. The Honourable Cattle Dog and I, we're, we're, we're not best friends, shall we say. Okay. So he's making this noise all by himself? Oh, no, 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 no. The, the, the whippet is there. Oh, a whippet. Yes, the whippet is uh, a staffer from uh, another party and is uh, in Pond House the natural enemy of the cattle dog. Okay, the cattle dog and the whippet. So both of them have clearly been drinking. They are in a state of advanced inebriation. I can deduce this... Because of the unsteadiness of gate of their gates, and they're standing almost chest to chest, yelling at each other. So the cattle dog is, is hanging out the whippet, and all of a sudden, the cattle dog turns into a bear because he starts to throw these big bear punches at the whippet, and the whippet being a whippet is very young, very skinny and very mobile. He knows how to dodge and weave. And so the Honourable Cattle Dog is throwing all these punches and he just can't connect. He's too drunk, he's too slow, he's too old. And then the Whippet sees an opening. 
and he just throws one little jab and hits the honourable cattle dog right on the nose. Okay. And this results in? The uh, cattle dog's head snapping back and a not small amount of blood issuing from his nose. Okay. And does this affect his temper? It certainly does. Uh, He turns into the hound of the Baskervilles. (laughs) Snarling and and spitting and uh, the whippet. He turns around and races towards his own office at exceeding the speed of sound. Certainly. I'm sure that there was a sonic boom (laughs) as he took off. He's thrown the door shut. Now, the doors in Parliament House are not just any doors. They're bulletproof. I mean, you could have a small nuclear bomb go off uh, and the building might be eviscerated, but those doors would still be standing. So the Honourable Hound of the Baskervilles, and still bleeding, (laughs) uh, he begins to hammer on the door. Let me in, let me in, uh, and I can hear... Uh, the whippet from the other side of the door going, no, 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 you're too slow, you're too fat, I beat you, ha, ha, you can't get through, no, no, no. The Hound of the Baskervilles storms off, yelling and swearing and cursing, and, and I think, oh, well, that was entertaining. I go back to my desk, sit down. I don't even get a chance really to do anything before I, I, I hear going on outside again. So I go to the door and I see the Hound of the Baskervilles. He's back with a wheel brace. (laughs) So he begins to hit the door and kick the door with the wheel brace. At this point, I feel that it is necessary for me to call the security beagles. Like in Parliament House, are these federal police officers? No, they're not. They're just ordinary security guards. Oh, poor buggers. They're just, yep, they're just little... They have no right of they're arrest just or anything. Dogs, aren't they? Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're, they've they're, got shiny coats. You know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> nothing they can realistically do. Oh, so what did they do? Well, they did what, what all of us do when we're in a bind and we don't know what to do at work. We call the boss. Oh, right. So the boss, Beagle, arrives. And he doesn't really say anything to the Honourable Hound of the Baskervilles, but he does wave around a pork chop. A pork chop? Johnny Walker pork chop. Ah, that would do it. It turned the Honourable Hound of the Baskervilles into a cattle dog that was quite happy to heal and head off to enjoy said Johnny Walker pork chop. (laughs) (laughs) So was there any particular fallout? There was. My boss asked me the next day, "Uh, can you just, you know run me through the story, so that I did. You know, the Honourable Member started it, he threw some punches, he just couldn't connect. And the whip had just got a lucky punch and then ran away. The, the party whips would, would have uh, spoken to both parties, but for me, the schadenfreude or epicaricacy was uh, the embarrassment the member suffered because, of course, gossip just went like lightning around the parliament 
And of course, uh, the next day, the honourable member had a, a, a very swollen nose. Did yeah. any journalists get hold of it? Yes, the Canberra Times did report on it. Oh, that must have felt good. Well, yeah, yeah, it was lovely. The yeah. only problem I had was that I wasn't allowed to give an interview so that I could have had 15 minutes of fame. And a defamation suit. <laughs> <laughs> Radioactive Cockroach acknowledges with gratitude that our episodes are recorded largely on the lands of the Jajawarang. When Judy Stutz is zoomed in, she's on the land of the Woiwurrung. And now, welcome to Greg Fleet, who's on the land of the Boonwurrung. We pay our respects to all leaders, past, present and emerging. Take it away, Fleet. actor, writer, killer, animator, dog... Uh, lovely to have you here, Greg Fleet. Nice to be here, mate. Hi, it's Greg Fleet speaking with my movie review, the first one of very many that will be coming your way. The first one is for the latest of probably 12 films called The Batman. I went and saw The Batman yesterday and I enjoyed it. Now, it's worth keeping in mind that for my film reviews, I'm very easily pleased. So I tend to say I enjoyed it quite a lot. So don't get overly excited when I say I enjoyed it. Uh, It's just how I... Hello? I'm not sure if this is recording anymore or not. No, I think it is, but I'm going to... Yes, I'm going to keep going. Uh, This is what happens when you record your film reviews in a laundromat. But it does add a certain uh, specialness to the whole process. Uh, Yeah, not many people do record their film reviews in a laundromat, and I am. There's also a TV playing in the background. You might be able to, if you get bored with what I'm saying about the Batman, you can listen in to the TV show. It's a kids TV show I believe and um, it's about stuff. There you go. So the Batman. uh, The story is as you would imagine um, the well-told story of the Batman. You don't sort of replay how he became the Batman but you hear about it, the death of his parents um, and then his decision or his need from then on to fight evil and to to become a, a, a source of, uh, of justice in Gotham City, which is obviously uh, New York City. But um, it's a very corrupt and very dark place. And with the death of his parents, he decides, as most millionaire children do, to fight evil and to uh, try, and, try and bring some light back to Gotham City. But you don't see all of that, it's just referred to. Basically, it starts with him in the midst of being Batman. It's a much rougher uh, sort of... I know everyone says, oh, it's much darker this time. Each of the Batman films seems to get darker and darker as it, uh, as it goes along. But uh, this particular time, it is rougher and darker than it has been. But even uh, his suits, his bat suit and the, and the bat 
items that he has, the motorcycles, the cars, the Batmobile, things like that. They're impressive, but they're not super impressive like they have been in past films. They're kind of much more believable, like what you could do with a lot of money in a car or what you could do with a lot of money in a motorcycle. Uh, so they're not space age, they're just impressive. Um, same with his outfit, his bat suit. It's not, uh, it's not incredibly dynamic and, um, and shiny and new. It's quite dark and dingy and kind of rough around the edges. The cowl, which he wears, which is his mask, obviously, uh, even that is uh, kind of like what you'd find in an army disposal store. It's, it's kind of good in that level. The, um, you know, the bat suit and the bat things, as they were, are, uh, are a lot more believable than they have been in past Batman films. So he's out. Uh, there's a lot of the characters you would already know. Um, Commissioner Gordon, Batman, Catwoman. Uh, I'm not sure off the top of my head of the name of the person who plays Catwoman. But she is fantastic. Uh, she's really good. Um, uh, Batman himself is played by Robert Pattinson, who you may remember from uh, he first made his uh, his break as a vampire in uh, the Twilight series on, on TV. He's a very handsome chap, um, but also very he's also very good. He was in a, an Australian film um, with Guy Pearce, uh, which was. Uh, a very dark film. Um, I can't, I cannot for the life of me remember the name of it, but if you look up those two actors, uh, it will come up on Google. It's a, it's a worth watching, that dark film. Um, but he plays Batman. Uh, there's some other uh, well-known actors in parts. I won't remember all of their names, of course, because I'm an idiot. Uh, Commissioner Gordon is played by, I know I can't remember his name, um, but he is... Uh, He's very good. <laughs> the guy, I can't remember, is very good. Uh, who else uh, features? You, the bad, the baddie in this particular film is the Riddler. And the Riddler is much darker and much more disturbing than you would have ever seen him before. Certainly much more disturbing than he was in the TV show where he was played by Gershon. Uh, um, certainly a lot darker than he was when he was played in uh, one of the films um, where he was played by Jim Carrey. He's uh, certainly a lot darker than that. Um, and a lot more disturbed, a lot more depraved a character and, and in a way a lot more believable in that he's someone not unlike Batman who's been pushed over the edge. Um, I'm just trying to think of, uh, of other actors you might know. Um, Colin Farrell is in it. He plays the Penguin, um, but he's absolutely unrecognisable. It's a brilliant uh, performance, uh, incredibly, incredibly well played, and also incredible makeup. You, you simply do not recognise him, even knowing that it's him. You can kind of look at it and go, oh, it, "It could be Fleet could be lying in his review because he can't remember the name of any other actors, so he's probably just lying about this one." But. Uh, there's, um, there's a lot of great actors, even in small parts um, throughout the film. Uh, and I think that probably suggests for some of them that they'll be, they'll be uh, appearing in more films down the, down the track, assuming that there are more made. And they usually are in the Batman. Uh, the Batman world it tends to be more than just one film. Um, each time someone has a crack at the, uh, at the franchise, 
um, oh, who is the wonderful Italian American actor um, uh, who was he played the Jesus guy in um, in oh this is like the worst film review of all time the man who can't remember the name of any of the actors he uh, plays the Jesus character in the film uh, about the dude um, and if you know the film about the dude you'll know who I'm talking about if you don't you don't um, but he's uh, he's brilliant as well um, playing Falcone another of the Batman villains who's a little bit closer to reality than than you know people like the Joker and the Penguin and the Riddler and stuff. Um, so one thing about this film, I say that the Riddler has uh, kind of been pushed over the edge by reality. Um, that's true. But the same is true of Batman. And one of the, the most interesting things about this film, and I will say it's very long, and if you're not into the story of Batman and you're not into the characters or the history, you may find it tedious. Um, it is a very long film, but I actually don't mind that in films uh, as long as I, I'm interested in what the film is about. And I certainly was with the Batman scenario. Uh, but as I said, it is quite long. But what's interesting, one of the most interesting things about it is that Batman is, of course, uh, a good guy, in inverted commas, but he is seen uh, as pretty much a vigilante by everyone. And he pretty much is a vigilante. Uh, the only person, the only police or, or uh, kind of officialdom, the only piece of officialdom that actually supports Batman is Commissioner Gordon. Uh, all the other cops basically think of him as they would anyone who just puts on a mask and starts killing people or hurting people, uh, that he's out of control and, you know, and that they're the police and it's their job and that, uh, you know, for the most part, they kind of think of him as creepy and dangerous. There is some great stuff uh, where you actually are brought to ask yourself, is Batman good? Is, is it right that there's a, a vigilante, a masked vigilante, running around the city doing this stuff? Because, like, a couple of times he rescues people or he saves people that are about to be killed and he, he'll come in and he'll get a bad guy and he'll be punching the bad guy, you know, and you suddenly go, he's punching that bad guy a lot, or he's punching that bad guy a little bit too much. And there's one particular scene where he saves a young guy, a young kid, and he punches the baddie out, and he looks at the kid, and the kid looks at Batman and says, don't kill me. And it's believable. You go, right, like, you know, a kid's not just going to go, oh, great. That, you know, dark guy in a suit just appeared out of nowhere, out of the shadows, and has just punched this guy possibly to death and you know why is he going to stop there why isn't he going to do the same to me um there's also a woman who's running for mayor who has pretty much the same reaction to him initially uh, that she's just terrified of him uh, as as a lot of people are but uh you know that's the questions that are raised that and it's good that they raise these questions and uh it's left to you, the viewer, to go, you know, do I agree? Do I not agree? Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Uh, it's, a, it's a good film in that it, it does raise those kind of questions. And I think if a film's going to be about violence and darkness and revenge and vengeance, um, it should ask those questions. It shouldn't just give you an answer. Uh, Batman actually does call himself vengeance at some point. And later in the film, there's a bit where they capture a bad guy who's, you know, 
just caused a whole lot of death and destruction. And they go, who the hell are you? you know, and the guy just looks down the camera and says, I'm vengeance. And you see Batman kind of react to that in that he's, he has indirectly created this man and these people that, that you know, think they're doing the right thing and think that they're, they're him. You know, they're getting vengeance for whatever reason on society or on what they see as the bad parts of society. Uh, a worthwhile film, uh, incredibly dark, shot in a very dark way. You know, in hindsight, if someone said to you, it's black and white, you'd believe it. You'd go, right, yeah, it was black and white. Because it is so dark that um, it, it has that feel. It, uh, you don't remember any bright colours popping out anywhere. And uh, it's, it's a very dark emotionally uh, and very dark spiritually as well as physically but uh, a worthwhile film and uh, as I said it, it kind of brings Batman to a slightly more believable place in uh, in the world in that you know you kind of look at the way he looks the things he does and you go that's that's doable you know um, but I would recommend it uh, certainly don't think it's a bad film at all I'd give it uh, I'd give it four stars out of five and um, yeah I'd say uh, get along and see it, see what you think. It, it, you know, maybe a bit long for people, and certainly if you don't want a dark, disturbing experience, don't see it. It's not the 1960s Batman TV series, that's for sure, but uh, it does deal with some of the same people, just on a much worse day. They're having a much darker day than they were in 1968. Anyway, uh, there's my first film review. In future, I'll learn the names of actors before I actually do a review and see how that goes. Thank you very much. i give you back to my friends. See ya. Uh, would you please give a big round of applause and a thank you to Greg Fleet, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Oh, shucks. Thanks, Fleety. We're moving into the spotlight now. That's the shriveling place we step into when we gather our courage and address formally all that arises in the wake of sexual assault and making disclosures. Today we're stepping into the Canberra bubble and, well, you know, maybe we might even burst a little bit of it. We're looking at the culture of Australia's federal parliamentary precinct. There is discussion of the fact that women get assaulted there and we will also make reference to, but not detail, the abuse of children. We focus on culture and recovery here at Radioactive Cockroach, but it's worth considering whether some of you might find this the whole point of these warnings is to give you choice. You can plan for the time and place to listen so you can be assured of having the resources you need. Or, alternatively, you can just not bother. He's buggered off. So he has, he's scarpered. Brave for Robin, run away. No! Bravely ran away, away. I didn't! When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail no. and said, Yes, brave Sir Robin turned about. I didn't. He chickened out, bravely taking I to never his did. Feet. He beat a very brave retreat. Oh,
I'm forever blowing bubbles. I spoke out because I wanted the next generation of staffers to work in a better place, to take up a dream job like I did, and for it to live up to their hopes and not betray them. Like my dreams, they fade and die. Fortunes always Inside the Canberra bubble. What happens in Canberra stays in Canberra. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. Toxic for women. The Canberra bubble. I'm forever blowing bubbles. Pretty bubbles Today was an important day in Parliament. Normally, we'd be bagging what goes on in Parliament, but today, it looks like they did something right. They actually apologised for the egregious treatment of women that's been going on for, well, decades. In particular, they've, they've highlighted the courage of Brittany Higgins in speaking the truth about what happened to her. Yes, yes. I earnestly thank the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition for their statements of acknowledgement and apologies offered yesterday to victims of abuse in our National Parliament. In addition, I'd like to acknowledge Zali Stegel, who enabled a handful of us to actually attend in person. It was encouraging and an important sentiment, but I am cognizant that at this point in time, they are still only words. Actions are what matter. And what will be the true test of whether the government is committed to cre creating systemic change? Task force are great. Codes of conduct are important, but only if it's paired with institutional change. It's about time. Yep. Well, to employ a legal phrase, they say including but not limited to. Brittany Higgins, they're saying it includes everyone. And um, it's no secret that you were one of them because your story, we told that in, in series one, Yes, my, my dick punch uh, to uh, the renowned... Uh... I was uh, working in Canberra for the federal government in a high-profile department in quite a high-profile job. I'd moved to Canberra for just that reason. It was where I wanted to be. It was a, a serious career move and I was loving it. I'd made all these new friends. I'd taken up all these sports. I had amazing work and it, it just a, a huge career path. I mean, life was good. The only downside of where I was working was that the permanent secretary for whom I worked was known by a number of epithets. The most common was groper. He loved her boobs. He yeah. loved her ass in particular. Okay. And, uh, and also a bit of a pincher as well. Ow. We're talking 1980s. Once a year, we had a, a sporting weekend. I was in a, a touch rugby team. On this particular occasion, the groper decided he was going to attend. But his normal wrangler was not available. There was someone that was understood that would just stand between him and danger. Exactly. Oh. 
So this guy was was wambling free pretty much. All of a sudden, there's this bloody painful smack on my behind, mm. on my on my left cheek, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. followed up by a quick pinch, and I've got oh wow, turning around thinking it was some teammate, yeah, and it it was the boss. And there he was, and I was livid. Well, I didn't think it through that quickly. No. I I just gave him the dick punch. How is a dick punch delivered? Up high. Yep. Shoulder height. Boom. And straight boom. into the dick. Straight into and, the dick. And with a bit of luck, it'll reverberate off the balls anyway. Yeah, well, they're closely aligned. <laughs> <laughs> and this dude just went down like a sack of potato. Did it occur to you? That your career was also in that same sack. About three seconds. Uh-huh. Because there was that first second of, you bloody deserve this. Yep. There was this second second of, who are you anyway? And the third second of recognition. Yeah. Oh, God, what have I done? <laughs> this is mm-hmm. it. Career over. I'll be on the next plane back to Melbourne. I wasn't worried about... Legal ramifications, but uh, job, ooh. So anyway, and I've done it in front of like dozens of witnesses, so everybody saw it go down. Yeah. So I sort of turned up to work on Monday morning and fronted up to the my boss's desk and said, hi, you know, and he mm-hmm. said, oh, come on, you, me and the wrangler need to talk. And I thought, oh, this is just going to be, do I need my union rep? No, no, it'll be fine. Come on. This is just an informal discussion. And they basically put it to me that the reality was I couldn't stay there. Not in that that job? Not in that job. Wasn't going to happen. But they weren't going to punish me for what was a not unreasonable response to an assault. Uh, so they said, look, so we're going to move you sideways into yeah. that department and you can continue the re- your, your career that way. There'll be nothing mentioned on your file. Mm-hmm. I know this doesn't fix it, doesn't make it better, doesn't stop him doing this again to somebody else. But if it's any consolation, he's at home in bed right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you got him a good one. Yes, my my dick punch uh, to uh, the renowned. Uh... So you're happy to name him now, Jude? Yeah, I am. I... Now you might be wondering that since Jude's happy to name the person who assaulted her in the course of her employment and more or less got away with it, we've beeped him out. Now the answer is the person is still alive. We're not journalists, and so we're not going to name him. Not publicly, but journalists, investigative ones, feel free to investigate. Our focus here is on how Jude felt as a result of that apology. And in talking it over, she says no. It was the apology that was important to how she felt, not the prospect of going public. Was he a, a political worker or a parliament worker? Parliament worker. So he, he, he was the secretary. To so, so he was on the public a, payroll, not the political payroll. 
That's right. So he was as high up the food chain as you can go, pretty much. And he was notorious. Ultimately, the only thing that kept him in a job was the fact that he was a good friend with the Prime Minister of the day. So pretty much anything he did, he was going to get away with. And uh, it was just, I guess, lucky that when he decided to, to cop a feel of my ass, uh, and I turned around and gave him a kick, it was in front of a lot of people, including Coombs, who had only just retired then from the public service. He made sure that uh, nothing happened. He said, get in your car, go home, come to work as normal. I'll see things sorted. I turned up to work on Monday and Nugget was there along with another senior member of the public service who I won't name because they're First Nation person, but they were the only First Nation person at the top of the public service at the time. So, so Jude there and talking about Nugget Coombs is talking about a very famous public figure of the era and his name should not fade. If you Google him or just go to our Facebook page, you'll find a really comprehensive article about him from the Reserve Bank of Australia. It's worth a read. Also, we went to the SBS website and checked the guidelines for what's courteous and what's important when discussing deceased First Nations people. I'm confident that the family and the community, the Aranda community, are content for us to say that this good guy was Charles Perkins. Oh, so Charles Perkins was there and Nugget Coombs. This was serious <laughs> celebrity stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, they just made sure that there wouldn't be any uh, payback or any action taken against me. Yep. Given that uh, I was not the predator. You were moved then from Prime Minister and Cabinet? I was moved to Prime Minister and to Cabinet. To Prime so. Okay. So you anonymised things a lot in that first story. Yep. You were nervous of telling that story publicly? Yep. You've only just sat through that apology. Has that lifted something from you? Oh, look, yes. I, I think at the end of the day, just, just somebody saying, oh, no, all sorts. Yeah. Uh, I've always looked at it is that while there was one really bad dude there, there were two decent dudes there. Yep. Who made sure that he couldn't get payback or anything. Were you personally acquainted with other women who'd suffered in Eddie's hands and oh yes he was yeah. he was um, well known so this was um, common talk this happened to me this happened to me well this yeah, happened to yeah, me yeah yeah he was he was very well known uh, it got to a point where he couldn't have a female assistant yep because he simply couldn't be trusted it was managed but he was too it was valuable well, he was too friendly with the Prime Minister. The thing we- that always got me is the second there was a change of government and came in as Prime Minister, his first act virtually was uh, getting rid of And that was seen as a political decision, and, and I can, but I can always remember seeing on TV that night on the 7.30 report going... I don't understand why, I, why I've been sacked. I've been nothing but a diligent public service. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm dancing in front of the TV going, no, you're not. No, you're not. I know what you're like. Yeah. <laughs> so this has been quite a weight on your heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, th- this was a guy who 
yeah, who, who used his position, used his authority to get whatever he wanted. Was he good at his job otherwise? As far as I'm aware, he was. Was that a unique gift? No, no. Put it this way, when they finished him up, there was no trouble finding a satisfactory replacement. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. Cockroaches, a guest has been unable to attend today. They've been called away for COVID and elder care reasons and we thought we'd have a chat anyway. And I said, Jude, have you seen the apology? And just while I sorted a couple of things out, she had a look of it. And I'm seeing a different person before and after. I think that uh, whatever's motivated them, and a cynic might suggest that a prime minister and a leader of the opposition getting together might have decided that this was not going to play well electorally for either of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. maybe they are sorry. I mean, maybe they're not. They're just saying, but saying sorry can really make a difference. It is really really important and cockroaches 10 minutes ago judy stutz was not happy to name and now she is i haven't seen you smile quite so broadly that's amazing the power of that apology okay cockroaches it's welcome to ian he's been our our resident lawyer, and he's, he's done a, a few commentaries for us, but I think it's time for some full disclosure about why nobody looks like every time he wakes up. Ian? Yes, here I am. I, I believe I'm coming out from under, undercover to disclose that I'm married to, <laughs> to Judy Cockroach. And have been for some <laughs> decades. And just referring to a, um, another part of this uh, episode... He's the father of the daughter that wants girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes at her wedding. (laughs) Ian, towards the end of your career, describe it. Some of the work you did is some of the most satisfying as well as some of the most challenging of your career. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? I had the privilege of representing a group of men who had been harmed through their involvement with the Puffing Billy Railway as young boys. So there was quite a, um, a lot of publicity around that and the fact that there was active support of the perpetrator from within government? Yeah, the perpetrator was first convicted way back in 1959 and then found his way back into work with the Victorian Railways, it seems through high-level um, assistance, as high as the Cabinet. So that was a great shame on the state. Yeah, it was, and the perpetrator had quite a successful career in the public service and through that um, was able to continue this terrible behaviour towards young boys. There's a lot of people who are enthusiastic about railways and a number of volunteer organisations, and it seems for certain young boys this was something that they loved. Yeah. Um, being involved in trains, and in those days... They would be puffing trains, like Puffing Billy, steam trains. Yeah. Um, great yeah. romance associated with them. And can you tell us anything about the legal history of this? Well, one of the men, as of course they all were by now, was very active in pursuing the matter and got involved in a criminal case and through his connection with a number of the other men, recruited them to be part of that case 
and there was a conviction of the perpetrator. So that must have been very satisfying for them. Were you involved in that? I wasn't involved in that. So I, I only get involved in civil claims, so helping people to make claims for compensation. And in this case, you were successful on their behalf? Yes, we made these claims against various organisations, but in particular against the state government and Victorian Railways. The thing that I really want to talk to you about, because um, we've been talking with Judy Starts about the impact of hearing an official apology, even if you don't much like or respect politically the apologiser, the astonishing effect that it had. Now, you and I were privileged to be invited to the Victorian State Parliament for the formal apology to those men for what happened when they were boys and they were, they were officially apologised to on behalf of the state by the Premier, the Leader of the Opposition and the relevant Minister and their local members. I found it very moving. So did I, in a way that I really didn't expect. I, I confess that I was quite cynical about the process. I was privileged to be invited and glad to be there to support my clients who I'd come to know and, and really like, but I thought, oh, well, it's, you know, it's just words. But I was really blown away for myself by how powerful I found it. We were taken into a special gallery in the house and then it was announced that this was going to happen and they asked all to rise. And we all stood up, including the men, yeah. and various people in especially their wives, said, sit down. You know, we're standing for you. You sit. Yeah, um, and I think that, that was sort of, for them, a, a really significant moment where they got that this occasion, well, they knew it, it was for them, but it was really significant that everyone was standing and acknowledging the hurt that they and others um, had experienced. The other thing that really struck me was that it was presented as the members of parliament and the government and, and opposition, but it was a symbolic event on behalf of all of us, all yeah. of us in the state, that we were saying sorry to these men and their families. And, yeah, it was incredibly powerful. Now, other things had happened. There'd been an ombudsman's report and there'd been the criminal case and they'd been paid compensation. So all of those things happened mattered as well. The words alone were not enough, but the words were incredibly powerful and I think they all felt it. Yeah. It was the Minister for Transport at the time. He was completely overcome. He, um, for what whatever reason, it, it really hit him personally. He was emotional and in tears you know, on mm. the floor of the house as he spoke about their experiences. It was, yeah, very, very powerful. These men, they stepped into the, the role of being in the spotlight and into a role of advocacy that they most of them not really called to. They did it in spite of a natural shyness and reticence and they did it for others. The, the other thing I just wanted to say about these men that I acted for in relation to Puffing Billy and, and railways generally, I think a, a significant part of how they were able to be public was through the strength they gained from each other that they had formed this bond where they would meet for lunch every few months or so. They'd come to know each other. Some of them had known each other when they were boys. But as a group, they they found a lot of strength 
in being together and having shared. I mean, they all had different experiences, but they shared that experience and they knew what it was like not to have a voice because even those who did speak up were, of course, you know, one in particular was told, how dare you disrespect this respected member of the railway community, the one who ended up in disgrace and in jail, convicted of these terrible things. So compare that to the Ombudsman's report and now on the floor of Parliament, a serious, what was it, an hour or so yeah. um, of, of Parliament's time. It was genuine. Sandwiches and a cuppa afterwards yep. and they were treated with respect. Yeah, <laughs> There was my cynicism disappearing in a puff of smoke. It was encouraging and an important sentiment, but I am cognizant that at this point in time, they are still only words. Actions are what matter. And what will be the true test of whether the government is committed to cre creating systemic change One of the more complex challenges I've faced in my work is walking the fine line between sexual assault and child sexual abuse survivor advocacy. Sexual assault is a distinctly gendered issue. And whilst I happily lend my voice to it, I'm not just an advocate for women. I am an advocate for all survivors of child sexual abu abuse, many of whom are male. We must preserve that nuance, every nuance in our discussions. We cannot forget our boys and we cannot forget our men, not only as welcome equal participants in this ongoing conversation and without ignoring many negative patriarchal customs, we cannot forget our boys and men who are fellow survivors of abuse. Yes. Statistics say that perpetrators are more often than not men. Yes, statistics say that women are overrepresented in the survivor category. But statistics are not people. People are people, not political footballs, not disposable news items, people. During an interview with 60 Minutes last night, Jenny Morrison gave her take on some controversial moments during her, her husband's time in office, including that frosty exchange at the lodge with the former Australian of the Year, Grace Tame. I, I just found it a little bit disappointing because we'll welcome you in our home. I respect people that, like, want to change things, stand up for their beliefs and are strong, but I still think there's manners and respect. I want my daughters to grow up to be fierce, strong, independent, amazing people. And I think they can still do that and show kindness to other people and be polite and have manners. Many people ask me my secret of success. Is it in the way I speak? Or the lovely way I dress? Is it poise or personality? What elusive little facet. Let me help you put your finger on my single greatest asset. It's my nice looks. I pride myself.
my nice It's such a gift without price To be nice even when you feel blue Cause I really care And I've come here to share My wonderful, wonderful niceness with you I never said Judy, Judy, Judy Oh, but we are going to say Judy, Judy, Judy now because we have a Judy here who isn't actually a Judy but we're going to let her join the Judy, Judy, Judy club so that she can keep her um, identity private as most of us do here. So Judy, welcome to Judy, Judy, Judy. Welcome to Radioactive Cockroach. Hello, thank you. Nice to be here. I've asked you if you'd be wanting to come on because look, we've been looking at Grace Tame and I just wondered, what do you think of Grace Tame? I think she's freaking outstanding. She's gone down the hard path of being unliked, um, unsociable, sticking it to the man when it's not, you know, fashionable or okay to do that because you have to be subservient to the men in power. And she says, like, F that, there's no way I'm going to do that. I'm going to start an argument, start a, um, a discussion by not smiling and making me really upset. Grace Tame is on the autism spectrum and her mother credits being on the autism spectrum, giving her a greater capacity to not give us stuff than other people. You identify as being on the autism spectrum and uh, I just wondered if you've got any response to that. Yeah, I I recognise what she did as like she saw an injustice and she thought this isn't okay, I want to fix this and it doesn't occur to her whether it's the appropriate thing or will people think she's nice. She just she sees that this is not okay, and she's standing in a spot where she can do something. So she thinks I'm going to do something. This is just the next step in what has to happen logically. It's a logical necessity, and it's the right thing to do. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. She's gifted with being extraordinarily beautiful, and this counts. And the more beautiful you are, apparently. Um, the more people expect you to smile upon them and make you feel really blessed by their kindness and smiling. Is this demand to be kind and smiling something that you have felt as a burden? Yes, absolutely, because the smiling thing doesn't come naturally to me. And and the laughing when, when someone says a joke to me, I might actually find it funny, but my face just doesn't do the thing. So they go, oh, you didn't like that joke. And I go, no, I liked it. It was good. But I just don't have the smiling thing. Judy, I decided to actually look at the television and people who were being interviewed on current affairs shows and whatever and put a mental stopwatch on the men for how much smiling they did and the women and how much smiling they did. And once you tune into that, my goodness, is this a gendered demand. It's like you have to smile to be heard at all. And then intersecting with that is being on the spectrum and not finding that that comes naturally to you. You don't... Yes. Yeah. Often I, I'm treated as if I'm angry or unsociable or sort of they say, are you upset about something? Like, what's bothering you? And I'm going, fine, there's nothing bothering me. And, like, it's assumed that there's something wrong because I'm not smiling. Yeah. So that so that then then because I know that this is a thing that people do, whether I like it or not, it's just what they do. Yeah. Then I try to stick a smile on my face. It just looks like just looks ridiculous and artificial. Mm-hmm. Does yeah. it does it look artificial? Do people too it looks artificial, or does it just feel artificial to you? 
probably feels artificial to me. I don't know how it looks. Yeah. I don't have any yeah. perception of how I look. Yeah. In the media, the, the sort of stacks on, the stacks on um, Grace Tame, the, the vitriol over her not smiling. Often from women who are middle-aged and um, affluent. Uh, yeah. You know, because I was on the Morrison fan, uh, Facebook pages, fan pages, Facebook <laughs> pages, just to see what his followers were saying. And they're all, you know, lots of pearl clutching and how dare she be such a brat. She's un, she's ungrateful. She's spoiled. She's nasty. Um, he's just being a nice man. Like, it was all about, you know, she's unpleasant and not being nice. It was all about that. That's all that was, was seen. Yes, Do you think it, as a person, uh, and you're a divergent person, there's a different edge to how you experience that? Yeah, I find it mildly, abstractly traumatising. They don't know her. They ignore what she's been through. They ignore the hurdles that she fought through to get to where she is. They ignore that she was named Australian of the Year and they they want to like ha- have their parting shot as she's nasty and not nice and doesn't smile that's really all that they can see of her and I find that quite horrifying and disgusting she clearly doesn't fit she didn't try to fit she made a statement by purposely not fitting she started off this whole discussion with what she did which I just think is just magic that she she knew what she was doing and she knew that she'd start this Mm. I've actually got onto his pages and talked to people on there and said you know that she was abused as a child. She doesn't. Uh, she's been to a lot of stuff, and they they're just not listening. They just can't can't hear any of that. It's cruel, isn't it? It is cruel. That's what it is. Yeah. Mm. What takes you onto to, those pages? To see what his people were saying. Yeah. To, to see what they said about her not smiling. How are those people seeing this? Yep. To or see you... from horse's mouth. What do they actually think? Yeah, you're braver than me, Gunga Dean. ask you, Judy. Uh, have you got your hat there that says you're the resident Canberra expert? Just I have indeed. Pop it on and let's talk about the lodge. Well, the lodge, the wonderful lodge. And um, Jenny Morrison said that it was her home. Is that the case? Well, it's not her home. It's a public building, um, but it is used by prime ministers as their residence while they're prime ministers. And they're when not... there are guests in that home, there'd be two categories, wouldn't there? There'd be the personal guests of... And official guests. And official yeah. guests. And like all those QAnon people that live there, they were her personal guests. Yes. Yes. And Grace Tame was an official guest. Exactly. So, okay. you know, uh, very often if, if there are special events or dignitaries from overseas then they will be, you know, invited to the lodge for a photo op, a cup of tea. Mm. 
that's usually about it. So it might be an overseas dignitary or new diplomats, yeah. at least for a dinner or a lunch. You know, you, you've got to mind your P's and Q's and yeah. because you have, you know, significant guests arriving yeah. and, uh, you know, you're representing the country. So a little bit like Her Majesty. A bit like Her Majesty. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's an important event. I remember the last time the Queen gave an interview where she said she just thought someone had bad manners at an official event. Do you remember that one? The Queen? The Queen, yeah. She gave an interview and said that someone had had bad manners. No, she didn't. Well, I was going to say, no, I can't remember that. So does, she, does the Queen ever publicly criticise her guests that are there on official occasions for official duty? No, no. No. Okay. Uh, so, oh, I think I'll, I think I'll be informed by her manners. Be nice. Keep yourself nice. I told you once, I told you twice. Till you're ready to pay the price. You better listen to this advice. Once a jolly bagman camped by a portaloo under the shade of a parliamentary, and he twisted and he turned as he muzzled all the evidence. Who'll come a rotting the system with me? Thanks for listening, and please come back next time. And remember, take it easy, and get some help if you can't. 1-800-RESPECT in Australia, Samaritans on 11-61-23 in the UK, and in the US, 1-800-273-TALK. These and other resources are on our Facebook page and podcast feed. So that's all from Radioactive Cockroach today. Let's take you out to this gentle sound of rowing. And the beautiful sea shanty come lullaby, Shenandoah. This is a particularly lovely vocal version and also features that most unusual of things, a tin whistle played with such skill that it's ethereal. See you next time. And may you sleep the sleep of the just.